This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. First off, it's free, 100% free. There's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or your computer. It couldn't be easier. Anchor will then distribute your podcast for you. So it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. And you can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Hey, what's up, everybody? Chris Trapasso here from CBSSports.com. And you are listening to the Prospect Podcast. Today's Monday, September 7th. We have an NFL game in just a few days. Chiefs, Texans, Patrick Mahomes against the newly minted Deshaun Watson. Biggest news over the weekend beyond all the cuts. And I'm not going to dive too deep into them because there weren't, first off, as many surprising cuts as normal uh, on the veteran front. And there was about a third as many waiver claims after players were released and I think uh, that's probably obvious why that happened no preseason games not a lot of reporting from training camps as usual I believe 17 players were picked up off waivers when once they were released it's normally in the 40s or 50s but the biggest news of the weekend that happened on draft or on cutdown day, and there's always some a big trade, a big contract extension. It's happened for the last five or six years. Deshaun Watson signs a contract extension with the Houston Texans, and I kind of held my judgment on that because it took a while for the fully guaranteed at signing money to be released. And anyone that's listened to this podcast before follows me on Twitter or just reads my work on CBSSports.com knows that I'm the huge proponent in fully guaranteed at signing money being the most important element to any NFL contract because that's exactly what it sounds like, fully guaranteed at signing. It's not a signing bonus that gets paid immediately, but it's money that is guaranteed the moment the player signs a contract. So much, almost every contract that is reported uh, says the guarantees in it. All these big insiders uh, get the information either from agents or team executives, whatever they have an in or however they have an in to these uh, deals, report the full length of the deal, the total amount that the contract could be worth with all the incentives added up. And then we hear the reports of total guarantees or with 55 million guarantees or in Deshaun Watson's case, $111 million guaranteed. But it came out, I think, in a couple hours later, maybe it was a day later, actually. Pro Football Talk, Mike Florio had fully guaranteed at signing for Deshaun Watson, $73 million. 
total guarantee. So that's for injury only way, way in the future, $111 million, $73 million guaranteed at signing. I did a quick instant reaction video on Twitter, but if you missed it, that is the third highest among all quarterbacks. Matt Ryan's contract remains the gold standard. $100 million total guarantees and $94.5 million fully guaranteed at signing. So that was like an unprecedented deal that that Falcons front office gave Matt Ryan in 2018 because there was such a high percentage of it was fully guaranteed at signing. They did the same thing with Julio Jones too. He has a super high percentage of his guarantees were guaranteed the moment that he signed the contract. So $94.5 million for Matt Ryan. Aaron Rodgers has $78.7 million fully guaranteed at signing. Then there is now Deshaun Watson, $73 million fully guaranteed. And for being such a shorter or a shorter deal compared to Patrick Mahomes' 10-year contract, it's a pretty good deal for Deshaun Watson because he can hit free agency again. He's not even 25 yet. And he has $10 million more fully guaranteed at signing than Patrick Mahomes, who only has $63 million guaranteed at signing, a little over $63 million in his 10-year contract with the Chiefs. And of course, you know, down the road, and, and at any time a player signs a big contract, especially when it's, I mean, if they're signing a big contract, they're probably a star. And in Patrick Mahomes' case, a superstar. It's really easy to think, oh, well, those guarantees in five years from now, they'll ultimately kick in. Those are basically guarantees right now. But with the quickness in which the NFL, uh, that we see players go from being superstars to a team wanting to cut them or whatever, uh, things along that front that those guarantees very rarely kick in. I I would say that Patrick Mahomes, I, I probably feel more confident with him in terms of his longevity than any other player that has been signed to a long contract probably in the last three to five years. But $63 million fully guaranteed at signing for him, $73 million fully guaranteed at signing for Deshaun Watson. So I think it was presented as like the biggest contract besides Patrick Mahomes will actually fully guaranteed at signing behind Matt Ryan and behind Aaron Rodgers in that vital financial category for any player in the NFL today. Other big news, Tredavious White, Buffalo Bills All-Pro cornerback, entering his fourth season in the NFL, uh, signed a contract extension with the team over the weekend as well. And the cornerback position is probably the best illustration why fully guaranteed at signing money matters more than total guarantees. Because right now, and this again was presented as the most guarantees ever given to a cornerback, and it is. $55 million in his four-year extension, could be it's five years because he had one more year left, uh, contract with the Bills. $55 million, just ahead of Byron Jones, who signed with the Miami Dolphins from the Dallas Cowboys this offseason. He had $54.3 million in total guarantees in his new deal with the Dolphins. So Tredavious White eclipses him in that category. But if you look at now number two and number three, so Byron Jones, $54.3 million. Patrick Peterson, $46 million in total guarantees in a contract extension he signed a while ago with the Arizona Cardinals. 
So, okay, th those are pretty comparable. But if you go a category over, fully guaranteed at signing, the contract category that I think is the most important, Byron Jones has $46 million fully guaranteed at signing in his contract with the Dolphins. $46 million. Patrick Peterson, only $16.2 million fully guaranteed at signing. So that's $30 million difference between Byron Jones and Patrick Peterson when they signed their respective contracts, the amount that was fully guaranteed to them right then. We do not have Tredavious White's fully guaranteed at signing figure yet, which is a little unusual. Two or three, four days later after a contract is signed, we almost always, those details always leak out. And I'm I'm sure they will. They have to. But we don't have that yet. So I, I haven't really put out a video. I haven't tweeted, written about it. And I haven't brought it up until now on a podcast. Well, I guess this is my first opportunity to. Uh, but... Because we just don't know. Is it $50 million fully guaranteed at signing? Is it $25 million fully guaranteed at signing? The average per year is lower than people expected. And I think that's why the initial um, thought about or the reaction was that the Bills, that this was a very team-friendly deal. But wait until that fully guaranteed at, at signing figure comes out. And that's not me insinuating that I know that it's high or it will be high. Um, but... $55 million in total guarantees, the most at the quarterback position. Cornerback position, is it $30 million fully guaranteed at signing? Is it close to that $55 million? Most contracts are a little more than half. Uh, I guess it kind of depends on the size of the deal. Some can get into the 60 to 70% range, but most are around like half, like the first two years of a contract. Big contract extension for a player like Tredavious White. are It's like the first year salary, second year salary, and the signing bonus are usually all fully guaranteed at signing. If you go further than that, if there are roster bonuses that are fully guaranteed at signing, that's where you can get those huge numbers. So $46 million, Byron Jones is where Tredavious, like that's the hurdle that he needs to clear. That's the highest uh, currently, until we get those figures, I'm pretty sure. I don't think there's any other cornerback that's higher than that at this point. Uh, so those big deals, two really good players, makes a lot of sense. And I, I think from the outset, both teams uh, made out pretty well. They didn't pay exorbitant amounts of money or set the market at either position for Deshaun Watson or Tredavious White, both franchise cornerstones on their respective sides of the ball. Obviously, Deshaun Watson playing a more valuable position but cornerback's pretty valuable in today's NFL and Tredavious White has been very good since his rookie year in 2017 with the Bills what I want to do for the draft side of things uh, to kind of intermingle with just regular NFL analysis that's probably a little different from what you any other podcast you've listened to I'm sure you've taken in a lot of cut down weekend analysis and evaluations um, actually quickly before I get into that Adrian Peterson signs a one-year deal with the Detroit Lions. Thoughts on that from a draft angle? Not shocked because I was not high on DeAndre Swift as compared to the masses. I love his frame. He's squatty. He's compact. He was a better running back in 2018 at Georgia than he was in 2019. And I think a lot of his production was 
directly the result of that offensive line that had a bunch of NFL players on it and just steamrolled everyone, even in the SEC. A lot of huge running lanes for him to go through. I saw him go down on first contact a lot more than you would expect for being such a stocky running back. I don't think he's really that elusive. Uh, Losing weight could probably help him. I'm not totally sure where DeAndre Swift is now weight-wise. But there's Kerryon Johnson. There's... Ty Johnson, there's Bo Scarborough, uh, and now there's Adrian Peterson in that backfield. And it's Matt Patricia coming over from the New England coaching tree from Bill Belichick that has long given fantasy owners fits because Bill Belichick just runs with different running backs every week, basically rides a hot hand for a couple of games and then uh, goes in a completely different direction. Maybe we'll see the same thing for the Lions, that there's Kerryon Johnson there, who was just a second-round pick a few years ago. Then there's DeAndre Swift. Now there's Adrian Peterson. To sign him this close to the uh, season to a one-year deal, you'd expect they're not – but they didn't just sign him to give him five carries a game. I mean, I don't think he's the instant starter, but he's going to get the football in Detroit. So it's not the best news for DeAndre Swift, uh, the number 40 overall selection, 40, 41. Uh, in the 2020 draft, I thought that was way too early for him. There is receiving prowess. I don't know if he, he's not going to catch footballs down the scene, but he's got good hands. I mean, to catch swing passes, I don't think is incredibly hard. And you see it for from a lot of running backs today, but certainly does not help him from a fantasy perspective. And just it's kind of a sign that I don't think he tore it up at the uh, Lions training camp this summer because now they bring in Adrian Peterson a week before the season. But anyway... Back to the NFL and NFL draft side of things. Different perspective from draft uh, from cutdown week. I keep saying draft weekend for some reason. I've, I guess I still have the, the draft on my mind. Um, I don't know why. We're, we're about nine months away from the next draft, but it's always on my mind the whole year, I guess. Uh, let's do – I found a list. Mark Jarvis, uh, one of the draft analysts I've seen for a while on Twitter – Really dives deep to the NFL draft every year. I believe his site's called What's On NFL Draft or What's On The NFL Draft. Um, he put out a list of the undrafted free agents that made rosters. So that was instantly interesting to me uh, because there's always players as a draft analyst that you really like or you view them as even a sixth or a seventh rounder and you're not seeing that player on other big boards that make rosters and and you're interested in them and you remember scouting them and then you go to draft weekend and they don't get picked and you think that's the end, you missed. And then I saw an interesting tweet just kind of just from looking at Twitter this morning and over the weekend, Eric Edholm of Yahoo uh, retweeted Jason Fitzgerald of Over the Caps tweet that he did an analysis of all the roster makeup in the NFL that there are more undrafted free agents on rosters today in 2020, getting ready for the season. There could be some, you know, transactions before Thursday, but more undrafted free agents on rosters today than second and third rounders combined. Of course, you can have a huge pool of free agents, and a lot of teams only have one second rounder and one third rounder. But over multiple years, you can compile those, and those are supposed to be very important players for a team. And they're 
I think for a lot of teams they are, but it just shows that undrafted free agents are a huge portion of the makeup of the entire NFL. So, and at this point, a lot of us know that beyond running backs, there's just a lot of undrafted free agents that go on to have good NFL careers. Certainly plenty that don't, but being a draft analyst, there's names that I remember scouting. I'm going to bring just bring up the ones that I had inside my top 250 in the 2020 draft class on my big board before the draft in April, and then just quick scouting report so any fans of any of these teams can get a better idea of who these players can be. Uh, and just because I had them in my top 250, I, I'm not just going to say, oh, this player is going to be amazing. I'll give you strengths, weaknesses, because if you're looking at this roster and you're and you're looking at your team's final 53-man roster and saying, who's this guy? Who's this undrafted free agent that made the team? I didn't get to hear about him this summer because there was no training camp. There was no preseason games. This year, more than any, teams are in the dark about a lot of these, maybe not late-rounders because we heard a lot about them from April until the summer, but who are these undrafted free agents? This is normally there gets to be fan favorites in training camp and preseason games that, that make a splash. So when they make the team, we've seen them play football at the NFL level. So we kind of know, uh, or fans are aware of them, but this year or, you know, fans in general are, are kind of in the dark. I'll start with Rico Dowdle running back from South Carolina made the Dallas Cowboys roster. There's Zeke Elliott. There's Tony Pollard. Rico Dowdle from South Carolina. He was just inside my top 250. His film was good at South Carolina. His strengths are that he's a stocky back. He's big. He's over 220 pounds. And he tested pretty well at the combine. I don't remember all of his his figures there. But for being like 5'10", 5'11", and over 220 pounds, he ran pretty well. Didn't have a fantastic workout. Um, but looked like above average from an NFL running back perspective. And on film, his contact balance and just power through tackles, not that he was like super balanced, but he could absorb hits and continue forward on that South Carolina offense. Played a lot of good teams in the SEC. Uh, They played Clemson at the end of the year, obviously, every season. I was really impressed by him. I I didn't think he had a lot of juice, and I didn't think he was super shifty. But good vision between the tackles, some bounciness to get to the outside, and he was just a rock. Like Linebackers trying to tackle him, weak arm tackle attempts just were falling by the wayside. So Rico Dowdle is someone behind that offensive line, Zeke Elliott's. Now had a few seasons of a high workload. I think they will work Tony Pollard into the mix there. Very springy, versatile second-year running back. But Rico Dowdle, I think, has the ability to be one of those undrafted free agents that if the opportunity presents itself to him, can be productive for a few games because he's running behind a good offensive line and he does have an NFL running back skill set. When undrafted, made the Dallas Cowboys 53-man roster. Next, Hunter Bryant from Washington made the Lions roster. What's interesting about him is that he didn't have a huge sample size of work at Washington, that he was kind of a part-time player earlier in his career, played a lot more in 2019. And in terms of yards after the catch were pretty outstanding for him. Uh, Watching his film, I remember seeing someone that didn't look particularly built for the tight end spot. He was more like an H-back or a fullback tight end type that 
was catching short passes, stiff arming a safety, and then accelerating down the field. During the draft process, I talked to a few uh, sources that said, you know, he's going to fall later in the draft than a lot of people think because he has a lot of injuries. There's like bumps and bruises, some ailments that teams were worried about. He goes undrafted, uh, but yards after the catch are becoming king in the NFL and especially at the tight end spot, that if you can line up your tight end in line, out in the slot, whatever, get that mismatch against a linebacker or a safety and throw him a high percentage pass. And then if he can break a tackle, make a defender miss and pick up eight to nine yards on a pass that you know is going to be completed 70 to 80% of the time at zero to five yards, that's very vital. And I think George Kittle, Travis Kelsey, Janu Smith, a lot of those tight ends uh, are showing the how vital being good after the catches. And Hunter Bryant, he's not to that caliber, of course, even of Janu Smith of the Titans, but he was good after the catch. He was like a running back once he got the football in his hands. And apparently he's fully healthy, had a good summer, and made the Detroit Lions roster. Interesting with TJ Hawkinson there, certainly someone that is very good after the catch. Uh, was a first top ten pick two year or last year in twenty nineteen. It'll be interesting to see if they use a lot of two tight end sets. And Hunter Bryant is the one that's making. I mean, not that I'm saying he's going to make more plays than T.J. Hawkinson, but he has a skill set that probably should have landed him somewhere third to fifth round range. Injuries goes undrafted. Not a lot of sample size. Not three years of high level production and six seven hundred snaps. Goes undrafted and makes the Lions roster. Another player, Luke Barku, cornerback from San Diego State, made the Jaguars, which is not surprising. They had, let's see, one, two, three, four, four undrafted free agents make their roster. Say what you want. The tank is on, whatever they're trying to do. I think they are making it even more obvious than the Miami Dolphins did last year. Or it's it's in line with I it's in line in terms of the lower level players that they're sending out there on their on their 53 man roster and I don't think that these players are going to play as hard for Doug Marone as the Dolphins players played for Brian Flores last season ultimately winning five games but Luke Barku to me he was in my top 250 junior college transfer long spindly high caliber instincts and twitch Maybe not crazy fast down the field. Like when he needs to shift into that top gear, it's not to the level that you want to see for a starting cornerback. But over six foot, spindly, not going to be an outstanding tackler because he just doesn't have the physicality and is not a press man type of player, even though he's big and long or tall and long. But his instincts are through the roof. Nine interceptions in 2019 for the Aztecs at San Diego State. Won the season before that. And sure, a few of them were tipped. I certainly watched his film, and they weren't all these amazing individual efforts. But nine interceptions are nine interceptions. Would he have made another roster? Maybe not, because I think, again, the Jaguars are are trying to play as many young players as possible. But don't be surprised if he's getting his hands on the football relatively often, because I saw someone that read the quarterback's eyes, read route concepts, and then would strike. No hesitation to his game when he sees that he can make a play on the football. He, and at times, might bite on double moves, but he's also going to get his hands on 
dig routes on comebacks that aren't double moves because he sees an opportunity and is the has the length and the twitch that stop and start ability to make plays on the football. I don't know if he's going to have a huge season. I, I think the physicality is going to be a problem and the speed will be a problem down the field. But Luke Barku, uh, nine interceptions last year. That's pretty impressive regardless of where you're playing, where you came from. If you're junior college transfer playing at San Diego State, nine interceptions, you're a good football player. So he is on the Jaguars' 53-man roster. Another player that was inside my top 250, just near the end, it was in the 240s, Parnell Motley, cornerback from Oklahoma. He made the Buccaneers roster, and that's an interesting secondary with Jamel Dean, the second-year player out of Auburn, had a bad start to his rookie season and then was lights out down the stretch. Had a ton of ball production, double-digit pass breakups. He was that size, speed, strength specimen from Auburn. Kind of stiff in the hips, but just anything on the outside. He suffocated wide receivers and got his hands on the football a lot late in the year. Sean Bunting, the cornerback from Central Michigan, played really well. Uh, can play slot, can play on the outside, super twitchy. And then Carlton Davis, another Auburn cornerback, similar to Jamel Dean, that just wins with his size and his length and his physicality at the line. So you have these three young players. You add Antoine Winfield as that eraser in the middle as a free safety. And then you bring in Parnell Motley, who on an Oklahoma defense beyond Neville Gallimore and Kenneth Murray that did not have a lot of talent or had a lot of problems stopping people in the Big 12 over the past couple seasons – but you watch those games, whether it was Kyler Murray or Jalen Hurts, and Parnell Motley was making plays on the football. And that, to me, it sounds like overly simplified the scouting process. But a big thing for me, cornerbacks that are constantly breaking up passes, constantly getting interceptions, it's hard to like scheme that. Like, yes, you could be in zone, and there are times where a quarterback throws a football right to a defensive back and you don't necessarily mark up for that if you're scouting for the cornerback but a lot of times if they're breaking up passes it's their instincts it's their twitchiness it's their length it's their awareness when the ball is arriving and Parnell Motley checked all those boxes was weird about him is that he looked like this small kind of undersized outside cornerback who was going to play in the slot in the NFL productive played at a big school Oklahoma didn't get invited to the combine, and then he had a pro day workout that showed he was like well below average in terms of NFL athleticism at the cornerback spot. And he's small, doesn't have a lot of length. It's like, man, it's hard to get on board with him as a draft pick. So he goes undrafted. I had him, I think, at 246, 248, something like that, because I just had to put him in there inside my top 250 because I thought his film was just not impeccable, but it was good, especially short to intermediate level, playing against a ton of spread offenses, air raid systems that make it extremely hard on cornerbacks because of how spread out the field is with the wide splits and everything. Parnell Motley just made plays, and now he's on a Buccaneers, very opportunistic secondary uh, with those young cornerbacks, Jamel Dean, Carlson Davis, Sean Murphy Bunting, that just interesting to see him probably playing in the slot and see if his instincts and just how good he is as a football player can 
supersede his lack of length, his lack of height, physicality, and his athleticism that he lacks, and if he can become a productive player. But hats off to him for going the very unconventional route of no combine, bad pro day, undrafted, and then making the Tampa Bay Buccaneers roster. So look out for Parnell Motley. Not a ton of speed, and again, the size and the lack of athleticism might hurt him, but he's a good football player. He made a lot of plays in the Big 12 over the past couple seasons. Right below him uh, on Mark Jarvis's list, Sang Bassey, another cornerback, Wake Forest, made the Broncos, and there was, in the pre-draft process before the Senior Bowl, I had a Sang Bassey inside my first round. He goes to the Senior Bowl, which is not an event for someone like him because he is a slot corner that's going to excel in zone and did excel in zone in college played a little more on the outside than he probably will in the NFL because he's smaller but a lot of one-on-one drills where the receivers can run these intricate routes against no one else on the field had a really bad week and I remember writing it and was interested to see him how he would fare in these predominantly man coverage situations during practice he didn't have a good week and there was a lot of good receivers down there and Asang Bassi was like the one that was picked on the most. He's like 5'9", 180, 190 pounds. But I just raved about Parnell Motley in terms of his ball production. Check out Asang Bassi's at Wake Forest. Tons of ball production. I want to say in the 54 or something. I'm trying to remember all these numbers off the top of my head. But he had like 50, 48, 54, something like that. Close to 50 pass breakups in his career uh, at Wake Forest. Multiple seasons, don't quote me on that exact figure, but multiple seasons of double-digit pass breakups. Bunch of interceptions. And you watch his film, you see click and close. You see him reading a route concept, uh, playing outside leverage on a on a wide receiver and then feeling a deep cross coming into his zone and then peeling off that outside leverage that he was at and making a play on the football on that deep over that was supposed to, that first route was supposed to take him away from that route and he still makes a play. So his instincts, his feel for the cornerback position, uh, I think are outstanding and it's interesting to see him make that roster. Michael Ojemudia, their third round pick out of Iowa, another primarily zone cornerback that tested very well. And Asang Bassey tested well. He ran in the 4-4s, had a good three-cone drill. I thought him testing well, plus his film, would get him drafted. He goes undrafted. They have Michael Ojemudia there, another favorite of mine. Longer player, has more of an athletic or a, a bigger frame to play on the outside uh, and, and had a good week at the Senior Bowl after Asang Bassey did not. But Asang Bassey makes this roster, and similar to Parnell Motley, it'll just be interesting to see if he needs to man up in the slot. He's a better athlete than Motley, but that's really where we saw him struggle at the Senior Bowl. I was a big fan of Asang Bassey. I think he wasn't near the end of my uh, top 250. I didn't have him inside my first round after seeing what he did at the Senior Bowl and going back and watching some of the film and really understanding that he was a zone-only cornerback in the NFL and that seeing at the combine he tested or he weighed in a little bit shorter or he measured in a little bit shorter and, and, and was a little bit lighter than I expected, shorter arms. But it was someone that was on the draft radar for multiple seasons just because of how instinctive he was, reading 
quarterback size, route concepts, click close, always understands when the football is arriving, does not have a lot of, did not have a lot of reps on film where the quarterback throws it over his shoulder and he can't find the football. He would repeatedly find the football in the ACC. Sang Bassey, overachiever, just like Parnell Motley, better athlete than Parnell Motley. I, I can see both of those in almost the same role. Slot cornerback might need to play outside at times against smaller receivers and will be tested athletically, but just have the, the football instincts uh, to the position-specific skills. I always say that. Like, Are they good at it's just what you need to be good at to be a successful player at your position? And I think Parnell Motley and Asang Bassey on the Denver Broncos can be those type of players because they, they can produce – after going undrafted because you just the film was was too good like there's a few players that I see wow that combine was terrible but his film was great I'll put him higher I'll I'll keep him in my second or third round Harrison Bryant the tight end from Florida Atlantic that went to the Browns in the fourth round he was like my trust the tape prospect that he looked super athletic on film was ultra productive had a terrible combine but I was like man I I can't just like completely plummet him on my rankings but there's a handful of other players that you do move them down because of limitations and that they just don't meet typical thresholds. But you still say, man, the film was too good. I, I have to keep them inside my big board, my top 250. Parnell Motley and Sang Bassey were those players. Um, I think that was it from this list. I don't know if Mark Jarvis has updated this and there could have been uh, other players. Or actually, there's one more. That I'm seeing right here. Another Buccaneers player, John Molchan. Uh, Molchan, offensive guard from Boise State, made the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Really powerful player. He had one of the highest bench press reps at the combine. And you just saw that on film that he was a mauler in the run game. Limited athletically, not going to slide laterally very well, but pretty good in pass protection too because he's just so strong in his upper half. Of course, he's going to be a depth player. They're not going to project him to one of the starting guard spots. They have Alex Kappa there. They have um, uh, Ali Marpet. So they're kind of set at the guard spot. I'm not as high on Alex Kappa, obviously, as Marpet. But Alex or John Molchan is someone that I think because of how strong he is, that a lot of blockers, even if they're super athletic, ask Garrett Bradbury about this. You're super athletic, but you just cannot deal with this strength of NFL defense alignment. I think that's, we always hear about the speed of the game is completely different for players, wide receivers, quarterbacks processing. The strength, even going from the SEC to the NFL, is a huge step. You see it so much on the offensive and defensive lines. These players that look pretty strong in college are just not, or they don't have enough weight. I think Molchan was pretty close to being NFL strong has good size, can play center guard, uh, was inside my top 250. I'm pretty sure. I don't I don't have that list in front of me right now, but I remember scouting him, and I think I had him inside my top 250. Liked his film, watching a lot of Ezra Cleveland. You see the guard right next to him, uh, John Molchan from Boise State, makes the Buccaneers roster. Let me look one more time at this list. I don't believe there was anyone else. Xavier Jones, running back, made the Rams. Wasn't in my top 250, but was super productive in that kind of spread offense for the Mustangs over the past couple seasons. Cam Gill from Wagner, I remember scouting him. Uh, athletic player, 
again, made the Buccaneers. A lot of players made the Buccaneers. Kind of interesting. Undrafted players, three of them. Uh, Parnell Motley, Cam Gill, or four of them. John Mulchon and John Hurst, wide receiver. Wow, from West Georgia. Marquez Callaway. Oh, he's another one. Marquez Callaway, wide receiver from Tennessee, made the Saints. Almost forgot him. Had him circled, actually. It's funny that he makes the Saints because, and he's from Tennessee because he reminds me a lot of Robert Meacham, who went to the Chargers after starting off really well with the Saints and could just never, he never really produced um, with the Chargers, came back to the Saints. He was just that down, that tall, linear, down the field, big play threat in New Orleans during the prime of Drew Brees' career, really. Uh, that's Marquez Callaway, that he's this big, he tested very well, big, long, physical, has an NFL body right now, and he's one of those players that he sees one-on-one coverage, he explodes off the line, and he's about six or seven steps into his goal route or his post, anything on the vertical route tree, he's putting his hand up. He knows that he has good explosion, and then his top gear is elite, that he really can separate down the field And he flashed in those contested catch situations. He plays to every inch of his frame. Is he going to run 15 different routes for you? Is he going to create separation underneath and at the intermediate level? No. And there is maybe some question in that, can Drew Brees really push the ball down the field anymore? Not as much as he could. His arm strength just isn't there, and the offense is really predicated on short routes by Michael Thomas. It'll be interesting to see the element that Emmanuel Sanders brings to the offense, because even at 33 years old, I think he does have some juice down the field. But Marquez Callaway, I remember watching him late in the pre-draft process, wasn't a lot of production at Tennessee. The quarterback situation was not great over the past couple seasons, but I saw enough to put him inside my top 250. He tested well at the combine, ran well. Again, you're not going to have him throttle down. He's almost... It's kind of funny. It's like DK Metcalf is like the um, prototype now for these big, fast, wide receivers that you don't want to throttle down and change directions, but keep them on the vertical route tree, and they're going to be a nightmare to cover deep. Marquez Callaway, not DK Metcalf 2.0, but a similar type player, big, over well over six foot, over 210 pounds, catches everything or does a good job in those contested catch situations. And if the Saints really want someone, if they're not really um, expecting a ton from Traquan Smith, their third-year wide receiver out of UCF, someone I actually really liked a lot who hasn't really produced to the level of a third-round pick at the receiver spot, and they just want some downfield depth, Marquez Callaway, that's probably why he made the team in New Orleans. So that's someone that's not going to say draft him on your fantasy team, but keep an eye on Marquez Callaway because he's someone that really took the lid off the defense and was hit for some big plays when his quarterback could get him the football at Tennessee. All right, that'll do it for me today. I'm Chris Trapasso. Thank you for listening to the Prospect Podcast.